did. Good to see everyone today. I want to welcome the folks that are joining us online. I know a, a number uh, of you have asked, well, how are you doing after last Sunday? And, you know, there's, there's nothing like um, a good old whooping of a Texan school yesterday to, to set things right in the world again, right? Yeah, go Hawks. We're glad you're here today. We are continuing our series of messages that we, we started at the first of the year. And today we're going to be spending, not all, but a good portion of our time in a book in the New Testament. Even though we're primarily talking about Old Testament stuff. Um, this book isn't very long, and it certainly has some interesting content. And to be able to understand the Old Testament, you really need to understand what this book has to say. It is the book of Galatians. Galatians is only six chapters long. It was not written to one particular church. It was actually written to a group of churches. It's referred, some refer to it as being a circulating letter. What that means is that, in this case, Paul wrote this. Um, He sent it. A church received it in the region of Galatia. They assembled together, and it was read in a public hearing. And then a messenger took it to another church somewhere down the road. And they did a similar thing, and then a messenger carried it on to the next church. This is the region we're talking about. You kind of, some of us kind of like to have our bearings straight here as far as uh, a map goes. If you look down at the bottom of this map, you'll see in red it says Jerusalem. Right next to Jerusalem is uh, on the left is the Mediterranean Sea. On the right is the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee's north is the Dead Sea. And uh, but if you go straight north through Syria and then kind of go to the west, you're going to end up in the region of Galatia. Galatia is kind of the central region of that huge chunk of land up there. And that's where these churches are located that Paul was writing to when he wrote this letter. So one of the things that's important to understand is that Galatians was written to Christians. And in developing the theme of this letter, it becomes very clear early on that Paul is baffled. He's baffled because of some of the messages that he has received. Uh, He's baffled because of some of the stuff that's going on up there. Let me show you a couple verses early in chapter 1. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So Paul, his frame of mind becomes clear right away. He's, he's astonished, you know, at, at their actions, some of what they're doing. From Paul's perspective, this is some pretty major stuff. They had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had embraced that message. 
But now, after a number of years have passed, they're starting to basically turn away from it. And they're turning towards something else. And from Paul's perspective, this is serious stuff. In fact, the next two and a half verses, he goes on and says this. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. That's a pretty strong statement. Just to say that, that's a strong statement. But what if he said it twice? Yeah, let's read on. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul's got a point to make, and he's being very emphatic, wanting them to hear him clearly. What was it that was happening? They were turning away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. And basically, in effect, they were returning to the law. The law sometimes is referred to as the Mosaic law. Sometimes it's referred to, out to the Mount Sinai law. This is something we need to talk about today. As we develop our series of messages, we started the first year that's going to head all the way to Easter. Um, this is a major theme in the scripture. The law is. And so we certainly need to talk about it. But unfortunately, it's also something we need to talk about because there is a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstandings that exist today regarding the role that the law plays or played in the past. Moses received the law at Mount Sinai. good number of you know that. You, you remember the whole account. It was approximately 600 years after God had chosen Abraham. And we talked about this last Sunday. He, when Abraham's name was Abram and he said, hey, look up at the stars in the sky. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as that. You know, here he was, 75 years old. His wife was 65. They didn't have any kids. You know, but this was a part of the covenant agreement that, that God had made, the promise that he made with Abraham. And that was 600 years earlier. A lot has happened during this 600 years. Abraham started having kids, um, started, starting 25 years later with Isaac. And then Isaac had kids, and so it continued. Eventually, um, Abraham's descendants end up moving to Egypt when there was like 70 or 70-some of them. There's a severe famine that's going on in the land. I'm not going to get into the details as far as Joseph and how all that happened, but, uh, but that played into it as well. So they, they leave the land of Canaan up in that area, and they go south down to Egypt. And they continue to multiply while they're down in Egypt. This gets the Egyptians' attention. The Egyptians are threatened by these people, and so they force them into slavery. And so a long, extended period of time plays out, hundreds of years, where they are slaves in Egypt. And then that's when Moses comes along. And part of the story of Moses is the great exodus. 
you know, where the ten plagues happen, you know, the plagues of darkness, the plagues of the death of the firstborn, and all of that. There were ten of those trying to get uh, the Egyptian, the Pharaoh's attention to let um, the Israelites go. Um, finally, he says, after the death of the firstborn, he says, okay, go. But then he even changes his mind on that and sends his army out after them. And then we have the parting of the Red Sea. Okay. So after Israel is now on the other side of the Red Sea, within a month or two, they end up camping at the foot of Mount Sinai. And... Uh, at Mount Sinai, this is where they get the law. Moses goes up the mountain. We usually think of the Ten Commandments when we think of the law. But the reality of the matter is the Ten Commandments, that's only a small portion of the commandments that were received. Someone who spent a whole lot more time on this than me has counted up by looking in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and you know those early books of the Old Testament, and they've come up with 613 laws that make up the law, Mount Sinai law. But the reality of the matter is that law became many, many more, thousands of more laws. Because the scribes, the people that would copy that, you know, back in that day, they were well aware and just familiar with it because that's how they spent their lives, copying down um, the, the ancient scripture, and they basically kind of morphed into being the teachers of the law. People went to them and asked them questions and all. And so they started expanding the law. They started giving additional details as to what the law represented. You know, like the one about re, number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, there it is in one command, but they ended up making dozens and dozens and dozens of additional commands in breaking that down and clarifying the specifics of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed and all of that kind of stuff. All right, so anyway, it's at Mount Sinai that the 613 commands were received, and then as time went on, additional ones were thrown in as well. Well, this is part of what was happening in the Galatian churches. Someone or someones was promoting the idea that in order for you to be able to be right with God, you know, it involved more than just the whole Jesus thing. It meant that you needed to be good enough, that you needed to toe the line and obey the commands. And so the law was kind of being slid in into the forefront of these churches and saying this is really what you need to do to be in good standing with God. Now I'm not my intention this morning is not to dog the Old Testament law because it it certainly uh, played a role and there was good to that. In fact, Moses had said this to the second generation right before his death in Deuteronomy chapter 5 in regards to the law. He said be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are not to turn aside to the right or left. Follow the whole instruction the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live, prosper, and have a long life in the land that you will possess. So, so there, there were certainly um, some, some good regarding the law, and it would be beneficial for people's lives. 
But the whole teaching of Jesus and what's happening here in the region of Galatia in the first century, this is very concerning to Paul because people are kind of turning their attention away from the cross and what was accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb and all of this. They're kind of pushing that aside and they're replacing it with a performance-based means of salvation that you've got to be good enough. If you're going to earn God's favor, you've got to toe the line. Salvation isn't so much a matter of grace anymore. It's a matter of works. And so that's what's happening in these churches. And we need to talk about it, both because it involves a significant part of Scripture, of this book, you know, the law does. And so as we talk about the major themes in this series, we need to talk about the law. But we also need to talk about it is because there is a tendency that sometimes slides into individuals' lives today and into churches today thinking that being right with God is a performance-based thing. You've got to perform at a certain level in order to be able to be right with God. And we need to clarify that because that is some serious stuff. What was the purpose of the law? What role did God intend for it to play? Let me start off with this. The law was never intended to be an end in itself. Somewhere along the line, there's been this mistaken thinking that, you know, the Bible, and we, a lot of us in here, we know that the Bible's divided up into two parts. You have the bigger section and the smaller section, Old Testament and New Testament. And, and the thinking is fairly common that in the Old Testament, God, you know, after what Kirk talked about two Sundays ago, Adam and Eve sinning and all of this stuff, God set into motion a plan of restoring people back to him, and it involved Mount Sinai, it involved Moses and all of those commands and everything, but that didn't turn out so well because people kept falling on their face and committing idolatry and all of this kind of stuff, and so God eventually decides to scrap that, and he kicks into gear a new plan which is one that he's going to send his son into the world to die on the cross, to be buried, and to be raised back to life. And so it's kind of like God had plan A. It didn't turn out so well, so God went to plan B. That is a common notion, but that is incorrect. That is not the message of what the Bible communicates. God has only ever had one plan. One plan. He didn't change his strategy midstream. Right in the middle of the chapter where the problem is being presented that we talked about two Sundays ago, right in the middle of that, we have the first prophecy that kind of tips us off. God's got a plan. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, the devil, he says, this is after Adam and Eve had already disobeyed, they had already sinned. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. 
That is the very first of what are referred to as messianic prophecies. The Old Testament um, has many messianic prophecies. People that are a whole lot smarter than me have taken the time to, to carefully look and to count up, you know, their, to find their locations and count them up. And they say that there are 250 to 300 messianic prophecies. Actually, a few scholars that say there's more than 300 messianic prophecies, hints that were dropped in regards to what God's plan was, you know, that he was working toward. Well, years later, Jesus appears on the scene. Our whole Christmas story, his birth, he grows up, begins his ministry. And at the front end of his ministry, we have what we refer to, the Bible doesn't refer to it this way, but we refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 5, Jesus says this. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, what I referred to earlier as the mistaken thinking that people have about plan A and then there was plan B, well, that would necessitate that when plan B is kicking into motion, you had to scrap plan A. Well, Jesus is saying, no, that's not, that's not what I'm about. I am not here to destroy. I am here to fulfill. So he's basically saying, no, the story, the storyline here is continuing. It was pointing toward me, and I am a fulfillment of all of that. Let me show you something. This is going to be a little, little bit tedious, but I think it's going to be worth our while. At least it should leave a little bit of an imprint on our mind in regards to this whole idea of Jesus saying, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, in reference to all that Old Testament stuff. I'm only going to look in the Gospel of Matthew to do this. I'm not going to go to the other Gospels. And I'm not even going to reference all the verses, but yet I'm still going to reference nine or ten of them. There's more that say stuff like what you're about to see. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill. There's the word. And Jesus had said, you know, at a later time, he said, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. And, and here we have a statement. Matthew writes, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. All of that stuff was talked about, referenced in the Old Testament, that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, that he would be born of a virgin. All, all of that was referenced in the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill that. Matthew chapter 2. So he got up, took the child and his mother. This is talking about Joseph. This is, of course, after Jesus was born. Herod is about ready to issue an order for all children two years and younger to be executed and so Joseph is looking out for his young family and it says he got up took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord 
through the prophet might be fulfilled. That had been stated back in the Old Testament that, that Jesus would come out of Egypt. Matthew chapter 2, later in that chapter. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth. Now this is Joseph again taking his young family. Herod has died and so they go up north um, of uh, Jerusalem and uh, they go to Nazareth. He settles in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. That had been stated in the Old Testament, that, that he would be called a Nazarene, okay? Matthew chapter 4, he left Nazareth. Now, Jesus has grown now, so he's a man, and this is referring to him. He left Nazareth behind and went to live in Capernaum. This is a city on the kind of the west coast of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So this had been foretold that uh, this would be the case. Matthew chapter 8. He drove out the spirits. And this is just one of many references to the, some of the miracles and everything that Jesus did. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Remember, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish. He came to fulfill. All of these verses are bringing you back to that very thought, that very concept. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. This was one of the favorite ways that Jesus had of teaching was telling these stories, parables. He would not speak anything to them without a parable so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. That had been foretold in the Old Testament, that that would be the way Jesus um, would, the anointed one, would teach. Matthew 21, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. This is talking about the triumphal entry when Jesus rode, rode in on a young donkey. Well, the Old Testament, long ago, earlier, had stated as much that uh, such would happen. Matthew 26, then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place. This is uh, on that occasion in the Garden of Gethsemane when the mob came to arrest Jesus. Peter pulled out his knife, started swinging it around and cut a guy's ear off. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. Because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he'll provide me at once with more than 12 legions of demons? Or demons. Angels. <laughs> Good grief. Okay. I, I've always got an excuse. I didn't sleep well last night. Okay. So that'll be the end of that. All right. <laughs> Golly, I don't know where that came from. Um, he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Let's say it must happen this way. Jesus could have called upon 72,000 angels to deliver him from that moment of time when that mob was arresting him. But Jesus knew, no, he came to fulfill what the scriptures spoke of. Matthew 26, verse 56. But all this has happened so that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. 
Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. So again, you, you think of that Sermon on the Mount early in Jesus' ministry, and he's making it very clear, I didn't come to abolish or destroy all of that, the law. It was the only scripture they had at that time. We call it Old Testament. It was the scripture for them at that time. He didn't come to abolish that, but to fulfill that. And so Matthew here, we've looked at some, and certainly not all, of the passages in his gospel where, where he is given example after example after example. He's saying that all of it culminated in Christ. Okay. So the law was never intended to be an end in itself. It was always pointing forward. Now, let me take you a step further. The law is incapable of saving us. And this is part of where Paul is coming from and what's causing him to be so emphatic with these churches in Galatia and anyone else who picks up a similar notion. The law is incapable of saving us. Let's look at the sacrifice side of it because there's a couple of angles we can look at at the Old Testament from. Let's think about uh, the sacrifice side. You know, there's a whole bunch on that. You know, I get people telling me frequently that as they're reading through the Bible, one of the hardest books to get through is Leviticus because it talks about all these sacrifices and all these details, and it just gets kind of hard to, to wade through all of that. What, what, uh, what were all those sacrifices? What was that accomplishing? Well, it's interesting. In the New Testament, there is another book that has somewhat of a similar theme as Galatians it is the book of Hebrews it's a longer book and in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, this is a lot for one slide I hope you can you can read it all and I hope I don't say demons anywhere in the middle of this um, here's what it says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves let me back up and say, read that part again the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. See, it was looking forward. Not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? That's a rhetorical question, yeah. If it would have made people perfect, then there would be no need to continue those. But instead, they continued them over and over and over again. I mean, the temple always had sacrifices going on. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you see what the writer of Hebrews is making crystal clear here is that the law, um, the law is just kind of a, like the shadow of something that is to come. You know, it's looking forward. And uh, it could never, by the same sacrifices that kept getting offered over and over and over again, it could never accomplish you know, what it seemingly was trying to accomplish, and that is to make people complete and perfect. Uh, instead, it was just basically serving as a regular reminder of the fact that we are not complete, we're not perfect, 
that, that the, the whole sin issue is continuing. Okay, so that's the sacrifice side of it. Now let's look at the commands. What about that side of it? Paul gets into this in the book of Romans. In chapter 3, he says, No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's such a significant verse. That is what I chose as being the memory verse for today's message. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. Okay, so pretty clear statement that's being made here of what the law wasn't going to be able to do. A couple chapters later, um, this is the Living Bible. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but it says the Ten Commandments were given so that all could see the extent of their failure to obey God's laws. It, it literally, the, the Greek here doesn't say Ten Commandments. It's talking about the law. So it's not, the Ten Commandments just kind of represents the law. All the other commands, the 613 commands, they were given that all could see the extent of their failure to obey God's laws. You know, part, part of the issue in all of this, and I'm not sure how this gained footing, um, it, perhaps it, the story varies from person to person, but I know it was true with me. Back when I was 16 or 17 years old, you know, I, I did believe that there was a God. I did believe that there was a judgment day. I didn't know anything about a personal relationship with God. In fact, I hadn't even connected the dots in my mind that the cross had anything to do with sin. I didn't know some of that kind of stuff. But, but I did know that there was a God. I knew that there would one day be a judgment day. And I knew that I would stand before God in judgment. And, and the, the, the way that that plays out in my mind, and over some 40 years of ministry, I've, I've found that a lot of other people have this same kind of notion. It's incorrect, but they have this same kind of notion. That when they're standing before God, God is who knows all and sees all. He's going to tally up all the bad things you've ever done in your life. And somehow it's going to be declared or put on a screen or something or other, what that number is. And then God is going to tally up all the good things that you did in your life. And there's going to be a number that represents that. And which number is greater, which number is larger, that is going to be the determining factor as to whether we go to hell or we go to heaven. And that, that was what I was operating under, that kind of a notion. I have no place I can go to to say, well, I, I was taught that by so-and-so, or I read that in a certain, I, I don't know. That was just my thinking. And I've found that it's been the thinking of a lot of people. And so I visualized that on Judgment Day, I'm standing before God, and God is tallying up all the bad things, and he comes up with a number, and he says, Brad Fangman, you have done 155,345 bad things. And now I do know that he knows all and sees all. You know, when I, when I hear he comes out with, with a number like that. 155,345 bad things. 
And then he starts tallying up all the good things that I did. And he says, and in contrast to that, you have done 155,340. Now at this moment in time, I'm sweating bullets. Because whatever this last number is, it's going to determine a lot. If it is a number less than five, I'm going to hell forever. If it is a number greater than five, I'm going to heaven in God's presence. Now, I never really thought about what if it is five and it's what's God going to do for a tiebreaker. I never really thought through that part of it. Okay, so, so God says, Brett, you have done 155,346 good things. And I'm like, whoo, I'm letting out a sigh of relief because now I get to go to heaven by the skin of my teeth. That was the notion I had. However, it came about. And that is the way of thinking of a lot of people. But that is not the way it works. Not at all. You see, being in the presence of a holy God requires that you be holy. God is completely holy. You must be completely holy. This is one of the things the Bible says over and over and over again, Old Testament and New Testament, in the book of Leviticus. It was the first book that really impressed it in my mind because uh, so many times it ends up saying, be holy because I am holy. But you see it in multiple other places, including toward the tail end of the Bible, in, in Peter's short writings, you read it in Peter's writings, that we are to be holy because he is holy. But there is a problem with that. Unfortunately, based on your performance thus far, you've already been disqualified. You are not holy. You can't back up and correct that. You can't remove that stain. Wasn't there a prophet in the Old Testament that said something about the stain of sin? Isaiah? Yeah. You can't undo the fact that you have sinned. So, so you're not holy. You're not completely holy in and of yourself based on your own performance. And there's many scriptures that bear witness to that. Here's a couple of them in the New Testament. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a part of that word all. Or in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We're lying to ourselves if, if we're trying to claim we don't have sin. You know, there's several different words that are used for sin in the Bible. But the word that is used most frequently just simply means literally to miss the mark. And you have missed the mark. I have missed the mark. What mark is that? The mark of God's holiness. We've missed that mark. And that's a big part of what the law is all, all about, is to convince us of that, to open our eyes to that reality so that we really understand that, we grasp that. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he said, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. I wouldn't have known it. The law is what opened his eyes to that. 
back to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. If keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Jesus wouldn't have come. The cross wouldn't have happened. The tomb, none of that would have played out. Not if the law was able to make us right with God. And by the way, right with God, that is the basic, I believe, accurate understanding of the word righteous or righteousness. Whenever you see that word in Scripture, it basically is referencing being right with God. And so in this passage, it says, if keeping the law could provide righteousness for us, make us right with God, then there was no need for Jesus. But the reality of the matter is there was a need for Jesus. God did not create the law and all of those commands to fix us. That's not what he was doing, but rather it was to show us how broken we are. That's what the law was all about. And then that leads me to this final statement. The law was intended to lead us to Jesus. This is what the law, ultimately, the role, the purpose that it played. And that's a big part of what is driving uh, Paul writing the letter of Galatians. Smack dab in the middle of the letter at the, toward the tail end of chapter 3, about the midway point. He says this, therefore the law has become our tutor. And that's where I got the inspiration for the title of today's message. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified, that means declared innocent, by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The role of a tutor. I had an opportunity when I was a freshman in college to be a tutor. It wasn't something I was looking for. It was something that uh, at the Bible college that I was at, um, the administrative office, they contacted me and said, would you be a tutor to a Haitian student that is a part of the student body? We had a couple of them uh, that year. There was Roro and there was Eddie. And, uh, and they explained that it was Roro. Everybody knew him by that name. Roro, for some of you in here, you'll appreciate this. Um, his full name is Rosalind Ustashi, but uh, he started Haitian Christian Outreach. We, not too long ago, took a mission trip. A good number of us, you know, went down there and saw the fruit of his ministry. And he is doing an incredible work down there. Well, this was his freshman year in Bible college, as it was mine as well. And he broke his leg. It was a pretty serious break playing soccer. And um, so it wasn't just a matter of setting the bone, putting the cast on, and within a couple of days, he was in class again. No, it was more involved in that. So he missed, you know, a number of classes, you know, both during the time that they were trying to set it and all this. And then as he was trying to get to the point where he could actually become somewhat mobile. And, and so the administrative office contacted me because they looked at all the courses that he was taking 
that semester, and then they looked for what student has the most similar schedule, and they found that I had pretty much exactly the same schedule with the exception of one class. So they asked me if I would tutor him. And so most days of the week, I would go over to uh, see Roro, whether it was initially in the hospital or later when it was, uh, he was in his dorm room, and I would talk about what we had been taught recently in such and such class, and, and I, I would share some of those details and everything with him. And eventually, he got to the point where he was mobile, and he was able to start going to the classes. And by that point in time, he was pretty much caught up. And so my role as a tutor ceased at that moment. There wasn't any need for me to continue in that role. Now, our friendship has continued for 40-some years, but uh, um, to be his tutor, if anything, he needs to tutor me, you know, now, because that guy's a pretty sharp guy. And, and, but, but that's an example of what a tutor is and what a tutor does, serving a specific role for a specific period of time. And what Paul is saying is that's what the law was. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And it says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We don't live under the authority of the law anymore. There's a lot of verses in Galatians that really drive this home, a couple of which we've already looked at. Galatians 2 says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. See, that's why the law was a tutor, leading us to Christ, pointing us toward Christ. Because the law couldn't accomplish what Jesus Christ could accomplish. Later in chapter 2, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. But the reality is there was a need for Christ to die. Galatians 3. Now it is clear that no one is justified, declared innocent, before God by the law. Because the righteous, those who are right with God, will live by faith. Not live by the law, live by faith. And remember last week's message, that was the whole thing about Abraham. You know, his faith. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Galatians chapter 3. If we could be saved by his laws, then God would not have had to give us a different way to get out of the grip of sin. For the scriptures insist we are all its prisoners. The only way out is through faith in Christ Jesus. The way of escape is open to all who believe him. Now that's the living Bible, so it, it's a little freer with, with uh, some of the wording, so it may contrast a bit from your translation that you have. But the overall message is there in what is being communicated. This is why Paul was so reactive. He was so strong in what he was saying. He uses uh, this terminology, reactive terminology. We looked early in the message at this first one. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which really isn't a gospel. It's not a gospel at all. So he uses the word astonished. In chapter 4, 
He says, I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Paul says, I'm astonished at what I'm hearing about you. I'm perplexed about all of this. And uh, look in chapter 6. It says, see what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, if I were to ever set about creating a study Bible, you know, where where there's like the little explanation commentary by Brad down at the bottom of the page. What I already know what I would say on this verse. I would say back in those days, they didn't have highlighters. They hadn't been invented yet. And so Paul needed just to write big letters to get their attention. And I believe that's what he's doing. See what large letters. He's really trying to get their attention you know, regarding the overall message of the book of Galatians. But when it's all said and done, there's some bad news and there's some good news. And this really is what this whole series is bringing to light because it is the story of Scripture. The bad news is that we've got a problem. And the verse that is your memory verse today in Romans 3 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous meaning right with God, in his sight by observing the law. If you just try to toe the line, dot the I's, cross the T's, and just obey it to the best of your ability, you're never going to get there. You're never going to be right with God. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We really become aware of the fact that we have missed the mark. That's the bad news. we got a problem. However, God has a solution, and this is the good news, and this is where this whole series is headed. And 2 Corinthians 5 is a great passage. It says this, For God made Christ, who never sinned, which means he lived a holy life, which means he qualified to be offered as an unblemished sacrifice on the cross. He never sinned to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And that's the good news. Everything points to Jesus Christ. You hear us talking about Jesus. You hear us in our prayers referencing Jesus. And it's all for good reason. Because that is where this is leading us, both Old Testament and New Testament. God has always had one plan, and that plan centers on Jesus Christ. So we'll break this down, and we'll continue to look at it in the weeks to come. But uh, it's good news. That's why it's called the gospel, which um, the word gospel literally means good news. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for today and for the opportunity for us to kind of wade into uh, um, a serious topic and, and somewhat of a difficult topic, but yet well worthwhile in helping us and developing our understanding and appreciation for what it is that you have done and continue to do in our life. And Father, I pray that this is something that we'll never, ever lose sight of, and we certainly, Lord, I pray that we won't take it for granted. It'll be something in the forefront of our mind. It'll be something that we will bring up with people that we care about, and even people that we hardly know, that this 
would be part of the message that we carry into the world, for it is that important. Thank you, Lord, for helping open our eyes to that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.